When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our discussion came from our archives and was recorded in May of 2023. Our talk is hosted by Dr. Marty Rowland, a faculty member here at the Henry George School, who is joined by our guest, Mr. Mark Morial. Mr. Morial is the former mayor of New Orleans, Louisiana, and current president and CEO of the National Urban League. The National Urban League is a civil rights group that promotes equality, social justice, and economic empowerment. The National Urban League spearheads social programs, public policy research, and advocacy efforts in over 300 communities across the U.S. to shrink the wealth gap in underserved communities. Through a combination of education, entrepreneurship, and job training, the National Urban League looks to create self-reliance and reinvigorate small and medium-sized cities. Many thinkers believe that the best indication of a society's development is its ability to increase population. If population is increasing, that means there must be sufficient resources from food, water, or income to support life. In 1798, Thomas Malthus, a famous economist from the 19th century, published his seminal work, An Essay on the Principle of Population. Here, Malthus theorized how increased agricultural production led to higher levels of population, but not necessarily improved standards of living. This is known as the Malthusian Trap. To Arthur Lewis, a Nobel-winning economist from the 20th century, population growth was a necessary prerequisite for the improvement of living conditions. Once food production was capable of increasing population, people would begin flocking towards cities, which would then improve living standards as they became hubs of investment. Lewis turned this dynamic the Lewis turning point. Today, some thinkers, such as Esther Diflo, a leading development economist, are rethinking the Malthusian trap of the Lewis turning point, trying to understand how people in cities grow out of poverty and advance their standard of living. Cities are economic hubs for the United States. They are often centers of population, jobs, resources, transportation, finance, healthcare, or even social services. According to the Bureau of Economic Analysis, Small and medium-sized metro areas make up about 90% of the United States' GDP. When I say cities, everyone is probably thinking of Chicago, New York, or San Francisco, but these are just the biggest, most memorable ones. America is also comprised of hundreds of smaller cities that, taken together, are an important part of America's economic engine. As of 2022, there are 263 urban centers with populations between 100,000 and 300,000 people. These are places like Worcester, Massachusetts, where I currently live, Pasadena, California, or Odessa, Texas. 59 urban centers have populations between 300,000 and 1 million. This includes cities like San Antonio, Texas, where I was just living, Memphis, Tennessee, or places like New Orleans, Louisiana, where our guest was born and raised. Needless to say, these cities can be forgotten when it comes to public policy or investment. Everyone thinks of those big flashy cities like New York or San Francisco while the others are left behind. 
And as I can attest, these places need a lot of resources and love to get themselves going again. Our guest today spoke not just of the importance of cities, but how we can make them better places to develop better standards of living. Mr. Moriel earned his bachelor's degree in African-American studies and economics from the University of Pennsylvania and his JD from Georgetown University. Together, we discussed how living conditions in New Orleans changed since Mr. Moriel's mayorship, how many cities across the U.S. face similar deterioration, and how the country can produce transformative development for future generations. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Uh, your office is based in Manhattan, uh, lower Manhattan, I suppose, but uh, we're going to be talking about that change a little bit because it figures into some of the questions I have. But uh, I guess for the uh, the audience, I wanted to give a little background on how it is that uh, Mark and I are speaking today in this program. And it kind of goes back to the early 90s in uh, New Orleans, where we met at the Jack Gillespie Environmental Breakfast. I think that's the uh, the event that we met. And you might recall the the people back then like uh, Tracy Washington and uh, Malcolm Suber, Jay Arena, Mike Howells, uh, Daryl Ma- uh, Malik Wiley, Brad Ott. Uh, you might remember Gary Gresh, who was always doing env- you know, the energy and anti-war stuff. And then Kit Center, who yeah. uh, passed away nine years ago. But uh, it, was a, it was a good group, lively. We had a lot of discussion. Uh, so... Um, just a little intro, uh, introduction. Did want to say that uh, you became mayor in uh, 1994 in the footsteps of your father, who went by uh, Dutch. Uh, first name is uh, Ernest. But uh, so, uh, in my first question, I wanted to uh, say that uh, you left office in 2004, which was just before the Katrina uh, disaster, uh, to, ha- to hold your current position uh, at the National Urban League. I thought that maybe we would uh, have you start off uh, talking about your uh, what happened exactly when you left office in uh, New Orleans as mayor and got into the your current position. Hey, thank you, Marty. And uh, I want to thank you for your friendship. And yes, I remember all of the names you uh, you mentioned who all were social justice and environmental justice warriors. Uh, before the terminology became popular, mm-hmm. uh, you know, toiling in the vineyards of the 80s and 90s in, in, in Louisiana. And uh, in those days, I had a chance to serve on the state Senate's brand new Environmental Quality Committee, which was a brand new committee set up in 1991. I served as the vice chair of that committee and it gave me a platform on many of these issues. Uh, you know, Marty, I had a, an incredible uh, run as mayor of New Orleans. It was a fulfilling, uh, rewarding, enjoyable, impactful eight years to change and transform a city that I deeply care about. I love, the. Uh, it's a city of my birth, it's a city of my family's heritage for more than 200 plus years. Uh, had a chance to leave office with high 
approval ratings. But more importantly, when I left office, the people felt that New Orleans was moving in the right direction. And they really hadn't felt that according to the University of New Orleans quality of life polls in many, many years. That poll began to show positive outlook about a year after I took office and we began some of the transformative changes. And it remained positive until about 18 months after I left office. It switched to people having a negative outlook on the future of the city. And, uh, you know, the rest was history. It, uh, it's been a tough road. When I left, actually, in 2002, I spent a year practicing law before I came to the National Urban League. And coming to the National Urban League is not something you seek, uh, as many of the uh, the veteran civil rights soldiers told me. They said, the Urban League presidency seeks you. You don't seek it, it finds you. And in many respects, the Urban League did find me. And I began an effort 20 years ago uh, this year to really transform uh, the National Urban League. And my job as mayor of New Orleans was to transform a great city, make it uh, more progressive, more inclusive, and also tackle hard problems uh, like violence and, and poverty uh, and housing. National Urban League, in many respects, was a proud organization. It had an incredible history, but it was sort of at a junction point, right? in the early 20th, 21st century. And I felt uh, we needed to uh, build it uh, into a multi-generational uh, organization that we needed to dig much deeper into activism and public policy. We need to completely retool all of our programs. We need to build new alliances and coalitions. And that's what the last eight years have indeed been about. And we've had tremendous growth. We're five times as large today as we were when I started. We mm -hmm. served eight times as many people. Our affiliate network is now led by a dynamic uh, group of new generation, next generation leaders, including many more women than ever yeah. before. We created an auxiliary of young professionals and we've dived hard into issues like justice system reform, democracy and voting, uh, the battle against extremism and hate uh, in America, uh, while maintaining our core work in economic empowerment, education, and after-school work. Uh, we will never let up on those, but we had to focus uh, more definitively on the yeah. social justice issues. That's good. Yeah, I, I did want to come back to your involvement in the National Urban League, but I, I thought maybe I'd uh, ask you to characterize how you fit within the, uh, I guess I'd call it the panoply of, of uh, social justice, uh, uh, activist groups. Uh, for example, uh, we all know about the NAACP National Action Network, the CLC. So how, I, I guess I see from listening to your presentations and what you do is that you're, you've got a keen focus on entrepreneurship. Would you describe that as a, a key difference in how you, uh, you're well, different I from- I think probably writ large. Uh, all of the civil rights and social justice groups pursue the same mission. I think we have different lanes and different focuses. So one of the areas we focus on is economic empowerment. That's everything from jobs, housing, and yes, entrepreneurship. And we started focusing on entrepreneurship because it's a way you build wealth. 
It's a way you create jobs. It's a way you create economic independence. And there are many people in the community who no longer want to work for someone else. They want to work for themselves. Uh, or they want to build an institution so that they can hire others. And so we started focusing on that. We now serve 13,000 uh, entrepreneurs across uh, the nation. And I think the important way to look at all of us in the civil rights and social justice space is we're, we're trying to stay focused on the same wide multi-lane highway. And we run in different lanes, yet we're pursuing the same direction. And that's one of the things I like to emphasize is, you know, we may have uh, differences here and differences there on policy issues, but let, there's no air between us when it comes to mission yeah. and focus and on the overriding issues. But the National Urban League has always been unique because of our direct services platform. You can walk in an Urban League office, find a paid professional staffer, and they will help you find a job. They'll help mm -hmm. you enroll in a government benefits program. They'll help you see if you can secure connectivity with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, we will help you if you want to become a homeowner. You want to become a business owner. Yeah. Uh, you need uh, a safe, wholesome place for your kids after school. In some places, we yeah, do yeah. childhood. In some places, we do Head Start. So we are so unique in the direct services work uh, that we do in urban America with a focus on the Black community. And no one competes with that work. No one has anything near the platform we have in that space. Yeah, well, that's good. Uh, I, I did want to say that I thought about having this interview after seeing you. Uh, actually, I watched it twice. I might have watched it live, but I can't remember. It's the Senate Banking Committee in the past Congress. And uh, uh, Senator Twomey from uh, from. Um, Pennsylvania, and you you handled it so well. Uh, wanted to compliment you on that, but you were focusing on uh, redlining and the problem of getting uh, mortgages you know, uh, for African Americans and other people of color. And uh, I guess my you know, after listening, I was saying after sixty years of uh, civil rights uh, wins in laws and such, that we're still in this place where. Uh, neighborhoods are still redlined and where uh, people, even with some wealth, can't get mortgages. Uh, did you want to you know, Marty, it, more it, about, explain or uh, maybe me, go into a little bit more detail? Me greatly that here we are in 2023 and the problem of redlining persists. Here we are in 2023 and the mortgage denial rates for Blacks and Latinos is higher than it is for white. Here we are in 2023 and Black Americans Latino Americans and many white Americans have a hard time paying for housing because of the affordability crisis uh, that we face. And so it's troubling, but we need a stronger anti-redlining law. We need a stronger community reinvestment act, not a watered down one, not a weak one, not one that's punitive, but one that is constructive and encourages investments uh, and investments in home ownership in urban communities, in black communities. And I might add, black communities today are not only urban, they're suburban. Look at suburban Philadelphia. Look at Jefferson Parish, Louisiana. Look at the suburbs in New York City. Uh, so our horizon and thought processes all have, also have to expand. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, 
uh, one of the foundations of the Henry George School of Social Science is that we have a strong focus on uh, affordable housing. And it may not be clear if you're reading some of the materials, but our focus is on having a, uh, a land value taxation system where we, we kind of promote eliminating all other taxes on, say, labor, taxes on capital, but we have a singular focus on taxing land value. And by doing that, you, you take a lot of the, uh, let's call it the, the rent from the rentiers who uh, do nothing to earn their wealth. And by taxing land, it's very clear throughout the history, and particularly in New York City, when you uh, took uh, the taxes off of land, you had a boom and uh, prices of land goes down and uh, people make it, it's more affordable. And uh, when you talk about community land trusts, that's a, another aspect of that whole thing. And I was wondering, since I, I know that your development in the, the Harlem area for your new headquarters is going to include affordable housing, I thought maybe you could describe how you yeah, went thank about you, Marty, doing we, that. We set out when we built our mixed use, our new headquarters building. We said we will not do a project that gentrifies. And it took us time to get the right partners in place, uh, to get the right configuration in place. But the support of the state of New York, uh, the support of the city of New York was instrumental. But what we're doing is we're showing people you can build a first class building in Manhattan and have significant, in our case, every unit is affordable housing, uh, 177 units, in fact, uh, on 126th Street, with the office space being on 125th Street. Uh, and that is going to be where our new headquarters is located. So the, the idea uh, uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, ensuring that uh, there's sufficient affordable housing is that there should be an ironclad requirement that every new uh, housing development in New York, if it's going to be a city-owned land, have a city permit, uh, be involved in, uh, uh, or, or include uh, uh, anything that uh, people who are low and moderate income need, uh, it needs to have affordable units. And we achieved that. And I'm proud of that, Marty, because I want to raise it up to everyone. Mm -hmm. Go look and see. You can. And we have affordable housing. We have first-class retail. We have the National Early Urban League's headquarters. We have the Urban Civil Rights Museum, first civil rights museum ever in New York City, coming to that site at 117 West 125th Street in about two years. Yeah. Well, that's good. Uh, so uh, I know that there's going to be people uh, tuning into this uh, 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 this interview. Uh, it's going to be on YouTube and in other places. And I'm going to hear comments that uh, uh, I thought you were going to talk about economics, Marty. And, I, and I'll have to say that uh, 100 years ago, when people talked the way that we're doing, we'd call it political economy. People didn't use that word economy. And uh, I think it's really important to point out that uh, political economy, uh, it was common to, you know, who's in charge, uh, you know, who owns what, and where does wealth usually end up? And, you know, that's 
pure economics. Now, I was wondering, uh, do you have a view on how the the word economics and how your what you're describing uh, fits together? This is a thing about uh, economics, and to me, economics drives the distribution of natural resources and human-made resources, the goal being to enhance and improve our quality of life and our enjoyment. That's what economics is to me. It's that science. It's the process. Uh, and we have had uh, systems in this country of, uh, of economics that was exploitative. The original system where so much of the wealth of this country was built, was built on free labor, the enslaved system, and then for many white Americans, an indentured system. And look, we have to acknowledge that that wealth was created, the tobacco wealth, the sugar wealth, the cotton wealth, all the agricultural wealth uh, that was created. In the 1800s, sugar and cotton were the most valuable commodities in the world. Cotton was a luxury item. Sugar was a luxury item in terms of people wanting to sweeten all sorts of foods. So we have to acknowledge that uh, when we talk about economics. And to talk about economics without understanding that is to talk about economics in a superficial way. Uh, I studied economics at the University of Pennsylvania. I had a great, great education in economics. I had teachers that wanted me to pursue a PhD uh, in economics, chose to uh, pursue a law degree instead, but learning what I learned and, and learning how I learned gave me the tools, particularly as a public official, to be able to analyze and see through sometimes what I call stories about the economy, which were not necessarily true. That's good. So uh, there's one phrase that I don't use and Many people within the Henry George School understand why, and that's the the word or the phrase human capital. And the problem with that is that capital essentially is inert. It's people, labor essentially, who act on capital on land or with resources that make things work. So to to single out the uh, the word human within human capital is to kind of uh, miss the meaning of the 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 join the joining of of capital labor and land, and um, I have a friend uh, Cecilia Moat, who's a consultant uh, African American woman in, in uh, Chicago, who really gets up in arms uh, when people use the word human uh, capital because it brings back uh, ideas of slavery. But uh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know these terms, people sometimes use human capital because it sounds more sophisticated. But you are talking about labor. You're talking about people's talent and 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 abilities deployed. Uh, so I, I can understand the the concern. Yeah, uh, the concern about the utilization of the term. But I think the important thing is we're at a point now where we have to develop human capabilities. The world of technology is changing what we all need to be know and be able to do to be able to function. I was uh, filling out a visa application 
It has to be done completely online. It's through a sophisticated portal. You know, it it's like, okay, I can't even take it, print it out and take it with me someplace, yeah. which means I can't do it on the in the middle of a meeting somewhere. It's a little bit inconvenient. But today's person has to be far more skilled in many ways, not just in the utilization of computers, but in communication skill, in collaboration skill. This is the essence of the knowledge economy. And we redline not only in housing, but we redline in the development of human capabilities. Yeah. And how does that manifest itself? Unequal school systems, unequal access to community colleges and colleges and graduate schools. Uh, all of this manifests itself in that way. Yeah. Yeah, so the, I just wanted to bring that up because it's uh, uh, it's kind of deceptive when uh, somebody uses the word uh, human mm -hmm. capital because it's like the the people that uh, are like running uh, corporations or maybe they have um, you know people that they control mm -hmm. uh, they can talk about human capital but it's it's kind of like uh, getting away from the idea that it's actually labor and it's important that we spend the resources to develop that labor rather than focusing it otherwise. Um, uh, so uh, I, I drive my wife crazy uh, by what uh, I do, I'm going to describe in a second. And that's watching TV programs uh, uh, that people of uh, that, I, you know, oftentimes don't even agree with. And the reason I, I do that is that I, I want to hear their their points of view, their uh, the arguments that they're making so I can be uh, uh, better informed or come back with maybe a, a more cogent argument uh, in opposition to uh, what they're talking about. Uh, one of the phrases that I hear uh, is uh, uh, kind of like a code word for uh, uh, African-American run cities, and that's large democratic cities and they're always talking about um uh, 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 uh well uh, inefficiencies and waste and uh you know it's, uh, it's da's it's, da's are soft on crime and that kind of thing uh do you want to talk about those kind of like dog whistles? all it is is old-fashioned racist stereotyping that's all it is it it, it and it's not not unlike the same rhetoric used in the 1960s and the 1970s and in the 1980s. Uh, cities have and are home and have always been home to all kinds of people. They've also been homes, the home of the greatest American successes and the greatest American challenges. Cities are a place where Black, white, Latino, Asian, rich, and poor live some to some extent side by side or within a city. I chafe at those pejorative, uh, because look, I could run around and talk about how rural areas are opioid infused, right? Mm -hmm. I could run around and talk about how, uh, you know, rural areas are heavily dependent on farm subsidies and subsidies from the Department of Agriculture. If all I wanted to do was play wedge politics. Yeah, yeah. People who do that are usually lacking in courage. Uh, they are seeking to distract people's minds away 
Do cities have challenges? Yes, but small towns do too, mm-hmm. right? Do cities yeah. have uh, economic uh, challenges and challenges with violence? Well, there's uh, 50,000 people who die of gun deaths each year, and uh, almost half of them die of self-inflicted wounds. So, you know, exploiting problems and challenges is simply something that uh, is, to me, uh, needs to be called out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, these point. cities, look, where would America be without its cities? Yeah. Where yeah. would America be without Boston and New York and Philadelphia and Cleveland and Chicago yeah. and Cincinnati, New Orleans, Atlanta, Houston, Dallas, Minneapolis, or Fort Worth? Yeah. The cities yeah. drive because the city today is also its metropolitan region. Yeah. And those suburbs are dependent on these cities. Yeah. You know, one of the things that uh, Henry George School uh, would say is that that's where the wealth is being created and the, the value of land going up. And what the problem is in society is that we're not capturing that rise in wealth uh, from the land value, and uh, we're not. For, we're not. You know, for for example, the the high rises where people don't pay taxes and don't even live in those buildings. I mean, it's 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 taking away from the rest of us by allowing those kind of things to happen. Yeah, look, we have a. You know, we're at another economic inflection point in, in America, because uh, on one hand we've got low unemployment, on the other hand we've got rising. Uh, if you will, a rising gulf between have and have-nots. Uh, we have a phenomenon in this country that uh, many working people are poor people. They have a job, but they're still poor. Yeah. They're still having a tough time making ends meet. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did want to bring up uh, uh, things. I, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I often see uh, meetings with congressmen or others, and somebody will stand up and start shouting about something that's relevant in the news, and they didn't do it. I think uh, recently, uh, Congressman Talib was uh, giving a talk, and somebody accused her of not uh, doing more against the Ukrainian war. Uh, you know, I, I welcome those kind of uh, outbursts, but. Uh, to an extent, you know, it's got to go to a point where somebody says, okay, well, you got an interesting point of view. Let's uh, agree to meet about that and uh, get to the nuts of whatever the conflict is. But uh, Mark, you, have- you have people today, they practice what I call angertainment. They are angry to entertain. They uh, are political showboats and show horses, not political work boats and work horses. Yeah. And it's just a period of time, you know, that we live in today, uh, where you have many elected officials who uh, you know, attacking others. Look at their legislative record. Many of them have never passed one bill. Or one meaningful bill. Yeah. Yeah. So uh so I saw you on uh, Meet the Press. It was Chuck Todd. And the little clip that I saw, uh, he was uh, peppering you about uh, uh, police violence. And you came back and said that there's often ways of doing uh, policing that don't involve people with guns, for example, you know, social workers and such. 
Uh, could you give us a little? Marty, uh, I'm of the you know point of view that, and I think Americans need to. We have to try some different things. Whatever we've been doing has not worked. So the idea that the only way we respond to violence is by hiring more police officers and arresting more people as though that's the solution. The evidence points to that as a failed approach. The evidence also says that historically, the largest percentage of people who are arrested are arrested for possession of marijuana or small amounts of personal drugs. You know, that is the truth. That is the God, God's truth. And so we have to ensure or be willing to try new things. So Newark uses nonviolent intervention strategies. And I don't get caught in a trap of police, yes, or police, no. I get caught in a conversation, or I like a conversation about effective public safety strategies. So that includes policing, but it also includes other types of strategies, uh, non, uh, if you will, unarmed dispute resolution teams are a strategy that many are trying. Uh, a response system uh, which allows social workers and psychologists to go out on some instances is also a strategy. Yeah. So, but, yeah. I, I, I appreciate the, the viewpoint and, and something connected with that. I think it's uh, ignorance of, uh, I think, most people in society who don't realize that there's a design within jurisprudence, the design where you err on the side of uh, letting people who may be uh, guilty, you let them go. Uh, you don't chase after them 100 miles an hour. And, and that's, uh, an in, uh, that's an intentional design where you don't want to ever put somebody who's innocent in jail. So there's a uh, so you look at the whole system of um, you know trials and uh, rules of evidence and laws. Uh, so you know, with a good defense lawyer, I think most people can get out of something, uh, whatever it is. But I, I was wondering if you could uh, give us your uh, point of view on my idea that uh, jurisprudence is designed to let. Uh, People may be guilty, maybe they'll get away, and then they, they've learned something. Well, the old uh, American adage, I mean, we have built into our system the presumption of innocence. We have built into our system the right against self-incrimination. That is, those are bedrock American principles. How much we adhere to them now, I'm not so sure. But the system was designed by a group of people who was skeptical of the power of the king, skeptical of the power of the king to just arrest people for specious purposes, really with political motivations. Yeah. And so the United States, the United States Constitution, the United States Bill of Rights was designed with multiple features, the right to privacy, the right to due process, the right to trial by jury, the protection against cruel and unusual punishment. I mean, the Bill of Rights is loaded 
with constitutional projection, pro constitutional protections related to the quote justice system. Yeah. Uh, how much we adhere to that? I don't know. I mean, how much people actually believe it's the case? Uh, but it's America. Yeah. That's fundamental to who we are. So I say this is why many of us fight. This is why many of us work. We want those rights to not just exist on a piece of paper that's 200 plus years old. We want it to be real in the DNA and the body politic of yeah. the justice system. Yeah, that's good. Uh, you know, I wanted to go back to some words and uh, speeches that Martin Luther King had. And I know during the, the Vietnam War, he came out strong uh, within a year of his uh, assassination. But uh, now that we're into uh, this looking like a forever war in uh, Ukraine, uh, do, you, do you have any uh, opinions that might parallel what uh, Martin Luther King was talking about uh, in the, uh, the problems of war while we're we got so many struggles here at home. Uh, you, you know, this is a militaristic, uh, we live in a militaristic environment. I do think, though, that President Biden, by not sending troops to Ukraine, uh, is modulating. And I, I'm always torn about this because I would prefer peaceful resolutions to a conflict. But I also know that Vladimir Putin practices uh, authoritarianism. Vladimir Putin was an enabler of Donald Trump and an ally of Donald Trump. Vladimir Putin interfered in suppressing the African-American vote in the 2016 election. Uh, uh, and, and he's now invaded Ukraine uh, for no reason except he thought he could do it and win. Having said that, uh, I do feel that oftentimes we rely on military power too quickly and too often uh, to resolve disputes. And it distresses me, for example, that a great you know, institution, a great creation of the 20th century, the United Nations, which is right here in this town, right up the street here, uh, doesn't seem to have the moral influence it used to have. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's a little strange that, uh, uh, you know, billions of dollars going uh, overseas for, uh, you know, weapons and bullets, you know, because obviously all wars will stop when at least one side runs out of bullets. And, uh, and you know, Marty, look, the Vietnam War was a grave mistake. Its escalation was a mistake. It cost the nation. The war in Iraq was a grave mistake. Uh, we should never have gone to Iraq. It was a war of choice. It was a war of uh, intervention. Uh, we know that now, but what lessons have we learned? Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the, uh, the last questions I had, and maybe you can uh, think of something if you wanted to add, but uh, I wanted you to comment on whether uh, Mayor Landrew of uh, New Orleans was the, the perfect person to take down the Confederate statues. Uh, it was very bold at the time that he did it. Uh, uh, there's still some statues that maybe should come down. For example, the 
the guy who founded the KKK, Albert Pike. I think his statue is still uh, standing on Jefferson Davis Avenue, which in itself is a good question of why there's still a Jefferson Davis Avenue in, so, in New Orleans. Yeah, Maybe I they know, change it. They change it. It's now Norman Francis Parkway. Oh, okay. So great. now Jefferson Davis Parkway is now named after the great president of Xavier University. Norman That's C. great. Yeah. Uh, I'll say what, this. Do you, what do you think about uh, Mayor Landry? And what well, I think? thought Mayor Landry showed courage and met the moment. Remember, at the point he took down the statues, it's at the same time that the Confederate flag came down uh, in South Carolina. Uh, the same time that the Emanuel Nine were murdered in their own church, Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston at the uh, at, at the AME Church there, uh, and it took uh, I think it took courage. He had people who, who pushed back on him, but he stuck to his guns. And those statues, first of all, they should have never been put up. Secondly, they should have been down a long time ago. Uh, and I just I think he did the right thing at the right time. Uh, what I hope is is that the city will take those sites and turn those sites into a celebration of New Orleans' multicultural uh, present and future. Yeah. Uh, that they'll take those sites and put art pieces or statues or, or, or expressions there that represent the current and the future of New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and maybe uh, see if there's additional statues that need to come down, but I'm more need to come down. I think all of these, uh, you know, Confederates, Confederate generals, Confederate sympathizers, these statues should never have been put up. I mean, I always yeah. tell people, say, who puts up statues to people who lose a war? I said, yeah. all these statues were, were an effort to try to justify uh, the South's actions during the Civil War. Yeah. You know, I grew up in a town where... Uh, it was General Custer's wife is, uh, was from. So uh, in 1910, they put up a statue of George Custer. And, you know, he lost. Uh, so we got a, a statue there. So I've got an interesting political background of people that we're supposed to look up to. So I, I thought maybe we'd uh, allow you to maybe wrap up the, the interview. Yeah, Marty, I, I, yeah, I want to just uh, point out to all your viewers, uh, to be on the lookout on April 18th for the release of the State of Black America report. It's going to focus on hate and extremism this year. Uh, we're going to look at how the philosophy of hate and white supremacy drive public policy. We see it driving the attack on Black history. We see it driving the attack on progressive climate policies. We see it driving uh, the attack on American democracy and voting. So the philosophy of hate and extremism is abhorrent. Those that practice it want to change and alter the public policy landscape. And we have to understand, so this year's State of Black America report is going to dig dig deep on that issue. Mm -hmm. That's good. Uh, so any of the... Uh, Anything that we didn't cover, you want to? Uh... I think we covered a lot today. Uh, yeah. I just always like to lift up the North Star, Mark. Uh, and, you know, this was a North Star when I led New Orleans. You know, I think the North Star is to build an America, which is multicultural, multiracial, uh, multi-orientation, multi-religious, multi-faith, uh, an America which uh, 
is bound together by an adherence to certain values, the notion of true freedom, the notion of justice, the notion of equity and equality, the notion of respect and tolerance for those that uh, may not be like me. Uh, and that is the America we have to build in the 21st century. America's always been an experiment. The founding fathers said great things, wrote great things, made grave mistakes. But it's been our job, as it was the job of many, whether it was Lincoln and Douglas, uh, whether it was uh, uh, Du Bois and uh, Booker T. Washington, whether it was uh, Johnson and Kennedy and Martin Luther King and uh, Fannie Lou Hamer and many others in the 1960s and Thurgood Marshall and Earl Warren, to, 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 if you will, embrace our role as constitutional perfectors. Our job is to perfect a vision whose execution was flawed and respect the vision, but not be held hostage by it and not believe that because we are not strong enough as a nation to say that the founding fathers were great, but they made mistakes. And to, in fact, do so is to be a true patriotic American. Yeah, that's great. Um, appreciate the, uh, the closing words there. So, uh, so this Marty, was thanks the... for your friendship and your, uh, your your great insight into this conversation. It was great seeing you recently. Look forward to seeing you again. Yeah. Be in touch. Okay, we will. So, thanks so much. Okay, we'll see you. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.